Are black, Hispanic, and other people of color being traumatized in predominantly white evangelical churches? And if they are, what's driving it? Racism, fear, ignorance, or something else? Welcome to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's. And joining me on this episode is Kyle Howard. Today, Kyle is a racial trauma and spiritual trauma counselor, and he's become somewhat of a lightning rod for calling out what he sees as white supremacy in the church. But eight years ago, Kyle was a student at the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and training for the pastorate. He also was a lay leader at a prominent and largely white evangelical church. But that all began to change in 2014 when Kyle started speaking out about racial issues following the death of Eric Garner. Suddenly, Kyle says he got notes from fellow seminarians saying, I thought you were one of us. Why are you talking about this? Kyle also says he was accused of the sin of pride, and the church gave him an ultimatum. Stop talking about racial justice and criticizing Donald Trump, or you'll lose ministry and pastoral opportunities. The years-long ordeal took a huge emotional toll on Kyle and left him with post-traumatic stress he says he's still dealing with. But what's a solution, and how can the church better love and care for people of all ethnic and racial backgrounds? I'll dive into that with Kyle in just a moment, but first, I'd like to thank the sponsors of this podcast, Judson University and Marquardt of Barrington. Judson University is a top-ranked Christian university providing a caring community and an excellent college experience. Plus, the school offers more than 60 majors, great leadership opportunities, and strong financial aid. Judson University is shaping lives that shape the world. For more information, just go to judsonu.edu. Also, if you're looking for a quality new or used car, I highly recommend my friends at Marquardt of Barrington. Marquardt is a Buick GMC dealership where you can expect honesty, integrity, and transparency. That's because the owners there, Dan and Kurt Marquardt, are men of character. To check them out, just go to buyacar123.com. Well, again, joining me is Kyle James Howard, a racial trauma and spiritual trauma counselor. Kyle also holds three degrees from Southern Baptist Seminary and associates in biblical and theological studies, a bachelor's degree in Christian counseling, and a master's with a concentration in historical theology. In addition, he's a mere five classes shy of finishing his master's of divinity. And if you're wondering why uh, someone might get five classes away from an MDiv and then quit, Stay tuned. Uh, We're going to get into that. But Kyle, thank you so much for joining me and just for your willingness to talk about this really painful time in your life, but also an extremely sensitive subject. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's my privilege. And I just want to say up front, I think I owe you an apology because you and I were discussing the possibility of you coming to the Restore Conference. And I think about the same time we were in those discussions and people tweeted about the lack of diversity in the Restore Conference. And when we then started having more discussions about it, you understandably are like, you know, this kind of seems like an afterthought. And I don't necessarily want to be added as an afterthought. And 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 the truth is, uh, prior to the reporting that I did on Bethlehem Baptist Church and seeing what happened there, which we'll get into, but prior to that, I honestly didn't recognize how traumatizing the church can be for people of color, especially, I think, uh, predominantly white evangelical churches. And I do think this is a topic that we need to discuss more, and that if we're talking about reporting the truth and restoring the church, 
this has to be part of our discussion. So I just want to say sorry to you for not making that a bigger priority and just want to say a commitment to talking about this more and helping us understand it. So my apologies to you, my brother, and I pray that you'll forgive me for that. Absolutely. And um, absolutely forgiven. And um, if I questioned your sincerity, I wouldn't be on this show with you. But it's Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I do genuinely believe that you are sincere, that I'm willing to have these conversations and hopes that we are able to build bridges, learn, move and move forward in a way that honors Christ and brings healing across the spectrum of God's people, across the uh, multicultural, transcultural spectrum of God's people. So yeah, I'm always forgiven. And I thank you for being willing to address that. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you saying that. And, and that's returned. I mean, I believe you're sincere. And I know you are somewhat of a lightning rod when you talk about some of these things. And, and I know there's going to be a certain amount of people that are going to be like, oh, Kyle, you know, I, I've heard it already, you know, uh, because you talk about things and you use terms like white supremacy, it it, it does trigger people. But I think we need to have these conversations, have them graciously, admit when we're wrong, because we're going to be wrong sometimes. We can be sincerely wrong. And so, again, just appreciate your heart and your spirit in this whole thing. Let me just begin with your story. I alluded to it in the introduction. But in 2014, you were at the Southern Baptist Seminary. You were a lay leader in a church, and you were ostensibly thriving, and everything went really well. Can you describe your experience up until that time? And so long story short, 2012, I moved to Louisville, Kentucky with my wife and two small children, and I began uh, my studies there. But even before I began my studies, I knew that this was going to be an experience. In the vast majority of my classes, I was the only Black student. And I can only think of one, a, a few courses in the counseling program uh, where there was one other black person who was a black woman. But apart from that, I was, again, almost always the only minority. And so because of that, I'd be in class and I would hear, you know, various racial statement, ra- racial statements made about the black church. Um, uh, statements made about issues related to the black experience, and they would, they would, but they would be had as if I didn't exist, as if I wasn't in the room. Hmm. To, to give you one example, I remember a preaching course where the pastor, excuse me, the professor, uh, he went, who was also a pastor at a local church, but uh, he, the assignment was he wanted us to write a paper about uh, a dead theologian, a dead theologian who had passed. And he, for about 15 minutes, he went on his um, uh, defense for why he would choose George Whitfield, um, who, of course, was not only a slave owner, but was instrumental in bringing slavery to the Georgia colonies. And so after this, a young, a young white, I want to say what young white kid, because I feel old now, but he was about 20 years old, 18, 20 years old. Um, he, he raised his hand and he asked, he's like, hey, this is great, but I would really like to write about a black pastor. Can you recommend a, a black pastor who's passed away? Uh, and I was in the corner of the room and I was like, oh, OK, this is interesting. And then the, the professor responded by saying, well, um, I can't really think of any off the top of my head, but you need to understand that black theology is going to be inferior to us. And any black preacher or theologian that you encounter is going to have an inferior theology than, than us. And so I would encourage you towards a, a, a not going that route. But if you want to go that route, I'm sorry, I don't, I'm, I don't know of any, any preachers to recommend. Wow. 
And uh, and so th- that was the kind of experiences I would had, and 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 this there was a profound awkwardness just in that because this actually happened later on when I was already dealing with a lot of uh, racial trauma and everything else. But when you're in a room and you're the only black person, and the room has thirty future pastors because everyone there is training to become a pastor, and you hear that kind of racialized ideology about the black church and black Christians and black theologians, you, you have to ask the mm. question. Do I remain silent and allow these sturdy white pastors to go into ministry with this idea of the black church, or do I say something and become that guy? So what'd you do? Did you say something? I did in that situation. I actually, I, I did raise my hand and I and respectfully, and I was like, well, with respect, Professor, um, I don't think that that's accurate. Uh, the black church and black theologians have historically had a very high view of God. Uh, they have had to have a high view of God because of slavery and because of the way in which uh, the white church sought to rob them of their Imago Dei. And, and so to persevere through slavery, uh, there, even if you listen to the hymns, there's a very high view of God's sovereignty, of God's om- omniscience and the God's omnipresence. And so I would argue that he that those uh, black preachers had a higher view of God, of God than George Whitfield. Who had a view of God that didn't include that included uh, not seeing uh, black people as being made fully in His image and being worthy of dignity. And so, I did say it respectfully. He kind of you know backtracked a little bit, says, "Oh yeah, yeah, you, you know that's right," and this, that, and the other. But then you then I had to deal with for the rest of that class all the eyes on me of again being that guy and. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and it's not in my head. The eyes were definitely on me. The eye rolls and the the noises as I began mm-hmm. talking of exasperation, all of that was very, very much present. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my experience at Southern, the, the major turning point did come in 2014. And so when Trayvon Martin was killed in 2012, I didn't publicly say anything, not because I didn't think it was an injustice and I didn't think that it was wrong, but I understood the legality surrounding that case and the Mm -hmm. stand your ground law. And so to me, I thought that there would be a common uh, understanding or common footing that this that Trayvon Martin was made in the image of God. And as a young, uh, young man, a young teenager, I believe it was a teenager who uh, was killed in this kind of way, who was murdered um, in this kind of way, that all Christians would share mourning and lament that reality uh, based upon theological and Christian conviction. And I was radically wrong in that assessment. I didn't speak out until it was Eric Garner being choked out in, in video crying out, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. To me, that was, a, that was the first time knowing, that, knowing the law, knowing all these things. I was like, this is, this is clearly a situation where these officers uh, have violated the law and should be held accountable for that violation. And so that was the first time I publicly spoke. And that was when I was met with um, having several uh, uh, former friends of a seminary peers respond to me. And, I, and it was all separate. It wasn't in a group text. So I don't know if they talked and then all, but it was, they all sent me the same message, which was weird. But it was, hey, I thought you were one of the us. Why are you talking about this? What does that mean when they say, I thought you were one of us? Because you blogged about this. And I'm thinking, one of us how? Like one of us Christians? Republicans? Is that what we're talking about? What did they mean by that? So that was the question that was on my mind, yeah. which was, you know, what do you mean by this? But as someone who has, has lived the Black experience and has navigated these spaces for 37 years of my life, um, and also through fleshing out these conversations, it became abundantly clear that what the expectation was, this is in the seminary life and the church life and everything else, there was an assumption that I was an assimilated minority. 
And by mm-hmm. assimilated, I mean that I was one who had uh, forsaken my blackness and had forsaken my black heritage and culture in mm-hmm. exchange for being adopted into um, white proximity, uh, white culture as expressed by the white evangelical church. And so me putting my arms and reaching back into the black experience and pulling it close and saying and speaking Christ to it. And that was a violation of what they expected of me, uh, which was that I no longer cared about black bodies. I no longer cared about black people. I only cared about issues that white Christians cared about, such as abortion, uh, such as um, republicanism and the various things that that includes, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When you say, I thought you were one of us, just so you know, I mean, with Trump, I got those same things. Again, I think when you speak out, when you say, what is going on? And I got that from my conservative friends who were like, I thought you were one of us. And I'm like, I thought I was one of you too, but I guess we're not on the same page because I thought the statements that he made that became very, you know, clear that he thought it was fine to grab women, you know, and to do the things he did and that he had abused. I just thought, you're okay with this? We overlook this? This is... So, I mean, I'm not to the extent that you have, and I'm not trying to pretend that I have, but there is, I think there have been some assumptions within the conservative tribe, whatever you want to call it, where I think, you know, for a lot of us, these past few years have been very disillusioning, where we thought... This is what we stood for as Christians. You know, as I read the New Testament, we're to stand for the disenfranchised, for the vulnerable, for the abused. And I'm, I've been shocked. So, I mean, probably a very small slice of what you've been through, but can understand a little bit. And that's where I think this has been so enlightening for me, because the same sort of things that I'm hearing from brothers and sisters like yourself are, are things that I'm experiencing you know, as you begin speaking out about abuse and about abuse in the community, some very similar dynamics and gaslighting and Darvo. And we, you know, we can, we can talk about some of those, but let's talk about your church, which was Emmanuel Baptist Church. I have reached out to them to ask mm-hmm. if, if they want to give their side of the story, if they want, I haven't heard back. I don't know by the time we publish this, whether they will, I'll include that if they do, but so far I haven't heard back from them. So we'll see. But you were a lay leader. You began speaking out. And my understanding is that they said they kind of gave you an ultimatum. Is that right? In 2012, we came to uh, to Louisville. Finding a church was very hard for us. Um, this is a whole nother layer. But so my wife is Vietnamese um, and I'm, I'm and I'm black and I'm, I'm black and multi-ethnic. We're literally a transcultural family. And so when we came to Louisville, it was we were already knew that it was going to be really hard to find a church. And the main thing on our minds was we wanted to find a church that understood transculturalism and embraced it. Hmm. And so, you know, we we jumped in and within about a within a year's time, I was a lay leader of a community group. In 2014, what ended up happening was there had been these murmurings about me that was kind of weird. And what it was, was some of the elders said that they had some concerns that I was, that I gave off a vibe of being prideful. I asked them, could you give me some examples? Because if that's in my life, I don't want it in my life. I'm more than willing to repent of it. Can I have some? No, it's really just a vibe. Like there's not really any examples, just the vibe that you give off. And so then when it came to social media, I, I had conversations where they, they're saying that, hey, we think that you share, you post too much, um, you need to post less things. And then the other thing was when I started my blog, 
um, and I started writing articles, um, I had a sit down with the leaders, uh, the eldership, and this was the major turning point. So this is like in, uh, I want to say 2015. I have a sit down with the leadership. This is a three-year assessment where they basically take all the men who are aspiring for pastoral ministry. I was looking at church planning, and they sit you down and say, okay, after the three years, this is our assessment of you. And so so I was going into this meeting already knowing because of what the elders have told me that I was serving in a pastoral capacity and I, and the work was just getting more, it wasn't getting less. Hmm. And so I was going in there like, okay, this is going to be a, a meeting of affirmation of confirmation and those kinds of things. And in that meeting, they did affirm my character. They confirmed that I'm serving in a, in a pastoral capacity. My ministry's flourishing. People are thriving, all of those things. But then they come back and say, well, we have these, these concerns. One you're posting things about you're posting things about race and these other things, and you're you're posting your articles, and we believe that that is showing that's demonstrating your pride because of your impulse for self promotion, and mm-hmm. so by because I would share a blog or because I would post something about justice, and because my follower count was beginning to rise, I was I was in the sin of self promotion. And it was weird because my the pastors, they, if they had an article, they'd post it. If they they would share articles posted by uh, some of their other church members, who, if they were white, or if they were even a minority who was just pushing their narrative, they would get shared. But for me, it was self promotion. This is a three page letter that I wrote mm-hmm. to our senior pastor, and I'm just going to read the first paragraph mm-hmm. uh, because I think that it really gets to the heart of behind where I was at this point. Dear Ryan, beloved pastor. V and I have devoted over five years of our lives to Emmanuel and have joyfully submitted to the leadership there as well. We have never once sought to bring attention to ourselves or ask for any form of recognition. We have labored and served the body of Emmanuel simply because we love God and his church. I have endured years of concerns, accusations, and misrepresentations from various pastors of Emmanuel, and yet I have received them without once losing my temper being aggressively defensive or disrespectful to the men God has placed over me. In humility, I expressed a willingness to step down from the leadership as a means of taking on a humble posture before God and men. I have come to the, to the pastors with the request that they would clearly express their concern grounded in scripture so that I could consider them and seek repentance if necessary. A month went by with complete silence, despite being promised that there would be intentionality in considering the things as well as presenting a basic biblical definition of pride. A month went by with no follow-up, and with no follow-up came still no biblical definition or categories regarding the concern. I respectfully asked follow-up questions after receiving an email in which I was misquoted and misrepresented. And again, over a month went by without any feedback to those questions. So again, three months now, complete silence. I never got a response or even an acknowledgement to the questions I was asked. Four pastors were tagged in that email, and yet still I was met with extended silence. Prior to all this, you met with V and I, and we sought to pour our hearts out to you, yet it was clear throughout that meeting that you had already formed an opinion of me that was indeed negative. Based upon that, what you have heard from others, some of the information you provided was clear misrepresentation and misquotes that were attributed to me that were made by other pastors. So I go on for three pages, just laying out everything. And then I conclude by saying, essentially, what have we done? Uh, If whatever we've done, if there's any way we can fix it, if there's any way that we can make this right, if I'm unapproachable because I've offended, I will go on my my knees and I will beg them for forgiveness. I mean, I just lay everything out and just ask, Pastor, what have we done done to deserve this treatment? And um, it was never engaged meaningfully, that letter that that we wrote. 
Hmm. So when we left the church, to give you a little bit of context, I had gained about 60 pounds of trauma weight. Hmm. My facial hair, I stopped being able to grow my facial hair. My facial hair, because of the stress, my entire beard basically stopped growing. I, I didn't get into the specifics because I, I know how these kinds of things can be weaponized, but I don't mind sharing it. I was diagnosed at 18 with bipolar, which was one of the results for why I struggled with suicidal ideations. And my pa- the pastors knew about my struggles with clinical depression. The suicidal ideations had been dormant for years. And now it was like daily me holding on to life by a thread. I wanted to end my life mm-hmm. almost every day of the week for over a year. And if it wasn't for my wife, I would have. Mm-hmm. And, and so... All of that was happening to the point where V was like, Kyle, we can't stay. It's lit. When I say it's killing you, I literally mean it was killing us. And I, I wrote an article where I shared all these things a couple years ago. And I, I wrote a follow-up because the leadership there began accusing me of self-promotion. Again, Kyle's just trying to self-promote himself. And I, I wrote a second follow-up article that said, keeping a secret almost killed me. And, and what I say in that article was, yo, keeping the secret of what my pastors did to me as someone who struggled with suicidal ideations, it was literally going to kill me. I had to speak, which is why I'm even speaking now. It has more to do with that than anything else. So when I left, and I'll never forget when I stepped down, it was one of the most depressing. Again, I was absolutely suicidal. I was in my study crying, just bawling like a baby. Mm. And I started to get a little emotional here. It's okay. But as I was crying, my wife comes up to me and puts her hand on my shoulder and she says, I've never been more proud of you in my life. Mm-hmm. And that was a saving grace to me because at that point, and it's, I need to understand this, that when I stepped down from that church and then in my ministry, I wasn't leaving a manual. I was leaving ministry because I had already heard of what Emmanuel had done to others who had left in regards to misrepresentations of character and everything else. When I made that decision, it wasn't just simply I'm leaving a church. I recognized that if I leave, then the potential for this church to fabricate reasons and all these, all of this stuff, I'm, I'm done with ministry. And so it was a profound going from one day looking to plant a church to another day of like, if I'm leaving, I'm leaving all of ministry behind. And so, so that was my mindset. When I left, it was I'm done with ministry, but I'd rather leave ministry than ministry kill me. And so we left. And you left Southern, the Southern Baptist Seminary at the same time? So from 2015 to about 2017, I was still enrolled at Southern. I lived across the street from Southern. So literally it would take me five minutes to walk from my house to the Southern campus. I didn't go on campus for about a year and a half. I, I took online classes, even though I lived across the street, because the hostility and animosity towards me at that campus was so strong. Well, and so let's let's talk about that and about the larger issue, because you have your particular context where you and V experienced so much racial trauma and also spiritual abuse, because, I mean, that was what you're describing sounds like that kind of spiritually abusive system. But I alluded to this earlier. I didn't realize the degree to which this was such a rampant problem in the church until I began reporting on Bethlehem Baptist Church. And that's really where we had had some conversations, I think, earlier. But this was when we had some real substantive conversations about what had happened, because at Bethlehem Baptist, you had been part of the story. You had been brought in. I believe this was back in, what, 2019, and... Mm -hmm to do some intensive, like a one-day intensive, right, of racial trauma with the staff there. 
And then you also had a dinner where anyone who was a person of color was invited to this dinner at Bethlehem. And sounds like what you discovered there, but I'll let you speak to it, was that there were a lot of people of color who were struggling or wrestling with how they were being treated in a predominantly white church as a person of color. So could you speak to that? Yeah. So I was invited by pastors who are no longer there. (laughs) (laughs) Jason Meyer, right? Brian Pickering, Ming Jin Tong. Yeah, Ming Jin and... um, Richard Starks? Yeah, Richard Richard Starks. I came up there months before I actually did this intensive just to meet them hang out. And, uh, and I actually stayed with a faculty member, Jonathan Bowers and his wife. They had me stay. I stayed in their home. Um, Mm. Amazing couple who also ended up leaving for these uh, reasons. I stayed with them and I got to know them. And then they, after getting to know me, you know, kind of filling me out, then I was invited back again to actually do this intensive. And then, as you said, the dinner as well, Uh, the intensive was, I believe it was a Saturday. It was a it was an all-day thing. I, I think I talked for like eight hours straight, um, and so it was like even through lunch, um, we were just it just was a, it was an all-day intensive, where I, I I laid out the realities of spiritual abuse, but largely emphasized uh, the racial trauma component of spiritual trauma, uh, more or less. And so I laid out what is trauma, what is racial trauma, uh, how does racial trauma perpetuated within white evangelical spaces? How can we stop perpetuating? racial trauma within these spaces, you know, all those kinds of things. And in present, you know, Jason Meyer was there, his wife was there, um, the pastors who invited me were there, various staff from the Bethlehem College and Seminary were there. Now, at this time, I did not know this until later, that not everyone was in agreement with it. There was a reason why I only met four of the pastors. They got like 20, but I only met four. At the mm. time, I, th- I thought the whole church was on board. And so mm. I-, I do have some qualms with not being given the whole picture there. Uh, mm-hmm. thinking that I came there to speak to the church rather than just to be some select elders because that ended up falling back on me where one day it's like, yeah, we're thankful for Kyle. The next day I'm being disinvited from a panel discussion that I was basically the keynote of as it started off by some other elders other than the one. So there's, there was a lot of drama that happened there. But I, I came, I spoke. Um, after that, I did, I did a lot of counseling. I had a dinner where I was hearing the various issues and challenges and I, and I shared with um, with Jason specifically and with the elders where I thought the health was of the church, which is something that I do. I do consultation work where I come, I talk to the church, I talk to members, and I'll tell the church, hey, these are the areas where I think that you're failing. These are things that you can do to become to be better. And so I did that with them. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I, that largely focused on the race thing. I did talk about other issues related to gender as well, but I largely focused on the, the racial dynamics of things there. And I was, I would say that I was received very, very well. I was received so well that again, these, these elders were talking to me about asking me about the potentiality of me moving to Minneapolis and, st- and being on staff at Bethlehem because they need someone. Like, so those are the kind of conversations that I was, I was having at that time. What were people saying? What, what kind of feedback did you get back from members of Bethlehem? Oh, a thousand percent positive from black and white. Were they saying some things as being a person of color at Bethlehem that you're like, oh, this is deja vu all over again? I mean, did you hear similar dynamics? I would say that everything that I heard was relatively textbook. Now, when Mm. I say relatively textbook, I understand that there's two layers to there. Uh, One of those things is one of those layers is like people would think textbook could be people using the N word or being like something like that. 
where when I'm talking about textbook, I'm talking about things that most people, especially white Christians, wouldn't even catch on to. They would they would they wouldn't even have the categories to understand those things and how offensive they are, how it perpetuates uh, white supremacy in the church, while minorities do. So those things are textbook. A prime example of that is that article that I sent you when, when the church colonizes femininity, where I talk about the way in which uh, white women, uh, a specific kind of white women, mind you, not all white women, but a specific kind of white women is elevated as being the paradigm of godliness. And all the men, including ethnic minority men, are encouraged to look to that paradigm of what it is that makes a godly wife. And what ends up happening is that ethnic minority women who have their own cultural dynamics and expressions, they're looked at being as being unrighteous and ungodly. And so you have ethnic minority men who marry white women. I'm the product of interracial marriage. So this isn't a this isn't an anti-interracial marriage statement. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's wicked when we weaponize something that is beautiful. I think interracial marriage is a demonstration of the kingdom of God. It's glorious and can be beautiful, which makes it all the more insidious when it's weaponized against people. So just want to make that clear. But what what ends up happening is that um, ethnic minority women, especially black women, are looked at as being, uh, uh, their femininity is looked at as being inferior. It's looked at as being deviant in some form. And so you have ethnic minorities that will, that's an expression of white supremacy, of, of, of making white women supreme and the supreme paradigm of godliness within a space and then enforcing on everyone else an ideology that says you need to look at this and you need to see this as being superior. And when you say that, when you write about that, you talk about the white woman as very meek and mild and not outspoken, more soft-spoken. I mean, I'm reading that and I'm like, I've never fit that paradigm very well either, although I, I know that paradigm. So to be clear, there are women who are naturally like that. That's totally fine. What I'm talking about is when you take a personality type and you baptize it as being the paradigm of femininity, and then you tell mm-hmm. everybody that they need to measure up to that, including other white women. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, so white women who are boisterous, independent thinking, who, you know, all those different kinds of characteristics, they're looked at as being ungodly rather than just having a different personality type. And so they're, so single white women are being ostracized in the church. So the, that's, where the, that's where you get the intersection between the gender and the race dynamic. And so it mostly affects ethnic minority women, but it absolutely affects white women and it affects all sisters. And it also affects brothers because what ends up happening there is that it's not love that is perpetuating, that is leading to these marriages, but it's a, it's a, it's a desire to fit in, a desire to be uh, found uh, safe and, and, and accepted. And so I, I'm the guy who's doing the, tr- the trauma counseling when I get an interracial couple like what do we what do we do now now that we realize that the reasons that we got married were not because of love but it was because of uh, faith-based pressures and so social pressures within the church how do we reconcile this marriage i got to deal with those kinds of counseling things so i'd rather on the front end be like yo this is not the reason why you should be getting married you should be getting married because you love someone not because you as a black man are going to be deemed safe if you have a white wife which is how it's used how interracial marriage is weaponized in the church and i know that as a result of your meeting they they formed uh, an ethnic harmony task force to begin addressing some of the things like why is it that they the elder board at bethlehem doesn't have more people of color on it and began digging into this, and they did it with, supposedly, ostensibly, the elders' blessing. 
But then after months and months of working together on this, I spoke with Janice Perez Evans, who headed up that entire effort. And she said it was beautiful. Like they had some of the best conversations, those who worked on this task force. Yet she began hearing. And again, this when they presented their report, basically nothing was done with it. It's just like it, they never did it. Like the, the church never really acted on, on any of the recommendations of this task force. But beyond that is that they began hearing. And this is where I said, oh, this sounds familiar when I'm reading what happened to you. They began hearing rumblings, and this was confirmed. I spoke to Brian Pickering about this, who was one of the pastors there. But they began hearing that there was speaking about them, even among elders and leaders at the church, but other members, that they were pro-critical race theory, they were woke, whatever that means. Um, They were Marxist. I mean, when I talked to Janice, she was so shocked because she was like, this had nothing to do with any of that. This was simply trying to work together as, you know, people of color and the church and understand how it is that maybe we overlook people of color. I mean, she's like, I was a product of this church. I was brought up under John Piper's teaching. Why would they say these things about me? I mean, I've been called these things. And I'm like, which is funny because I'm very conservative in my political ideology. I'm very not Marxist, uh, anti-Marxist, but these labels that that begin getting applied to people. I mean, what do you think is driving this labeling of persons of color when they speak this sort of othering and you know, when you get that label, then people are afraid. Because I mean, I'm reading books that say this is going to destroy the entire church. Critical race theory is like the number one heresy that's going to destroy the church. And now you're one of them. I mean, I think it's being misapplied. I think it's, 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 you know, kind of this politics of panic. Everybody's in a panic. And, you know, if we can use this against somebody. But, you know, when you look at Bethlehem and what happened, it does seem like this played into it. And I do think people were unfairly labeled. So why, what, why does that happen? And is that racism? Is that blindness? Is that fear? Is it all of the above? I mean, what is it that drives that kind of behavior? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And and I, I uh, Janice is a, as a friend of mine, uh, faithful sister. Uh, the, the the idea that she's anything other than uh, than faithful and theologically orthodox is just utterly humorous to me and and, and also like that she would be anything other than kind like hmm. yeah so that's it's just it's just very it, it's 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 one of those things you have to laugh not to cry and it's mm-hmm. and and not to show but i i had the privilege of meeting and spending time with all of the minorities in, in bethlehem and so and then to then hear how they were treated after I left. It was like, did y'all not hear a word of what I said? I literally spent eight hours telling you the devastation of traumatize, racially traumatizing the people in your care. And then as soon as I leave, you'd like nuke all the minorities in your care when they tried, when they went above and beyond to try to help you be better. And so uh, th- that's just, it's, you had to laugh not to cry. Hmm. Now, with that being said, what I would say is, and I think this is what, I think this is, this actually speaks to even the broader issue of when we talk about spiritual abuse and why I do believe that uh, ethnic minority voices should be centralized in those conversations, even though they're often neglected, because white Christianity, and when I use say white, I'm using a social construct. I'm not talking about 
race by biology. I'm not talking about an ethnicity. I'm talking about the, the social construct of whiteness that fuels specific theological expressions in the West. White Christianity has always been a force of spiritual abuse against ethnic minorities. The conception of white theology and white Christianity meets with spiritual abuse. What do I mean by that? Well, even if you look at something like Manifest Destiny, the concept that God has ordained the Europeans to spread across the land and essentially conquer and spread, and th th that whole theological concept of divine providence being exercised through white domination, that is a theological ideology which led to the genocides of Native American groups that led to the torturing and rape and killing and slaughtering of a multitude of First Nation peoples. And so even before you get to the, the slave trade, if you talk about what happened to the Native Americans, one of the things I've always said is that the, white supremacy is a theological enterprise. It's not something that is like a sociological construct that the church adopted. It is a theological enterprise that society adopted. The church served as the chaplain of white supremacy to society. It administered its ethic or morality to society. And so when we think about the, the, the slaughtering of First Nations people, that is an exercise in spiritual abuse, what happened to Native Americans. The entire chattel slave trade was fueled as a spiritually abusive enterprise, whether we're talking about the way that scripture was weaponized to enslave, the way that scripture was perverted to maintain slavery, the way that uh, black Christians, the, the Bibles that they were given with sections ripped out and missing. I mean, the, the entire enterprise was was fueled by spiritual abuse. Um, when it comes to Jim Crow and the various um, theological ideologies that served in lynching, that served in creating the sundown states, which served in um, creating this whole separate but equal dynamic was all fueled by the church, by Christians on Sunday. Let me stop you, though, because I know I know what the pushback is going to be. And the truth is, if you cut out from about, you know, the 1500s through the 1800s, the church has generally been against slavery, you know, and there's even some accounts of of monks who in Europe would take all of their money and buy slaves to free them. Yeah. And, you know, even in the New Testament, I mean, it's it's very clear that Paul didn't like slavery, even though he didn't try to upend it. He also was like to Philemon, hey, you need to take your brother and treat this man who was a slave as a brother, right? I mean, so there's yeah. this this ethic throughout Christianity, which is anti-oppression, anti-slavery. And then they'll say, well, I mean, there's also the entire abolition movement, which was very strong among evangelicals. So, yeah. and, and when we look at John Piper's church, I mean, John Piper was one of, now, I, I, <laughs> I think you'll have some pushback on this, but I'm going to say it because this is going to be the pushback, is going to be John Piper himself wrote an entire book, right, about his own repenting of the racism that he had had and how we need to change as a church. And Bethlehem was thought of in a lot of evangelicalism as sort of leading the way <laughs> on the church doing better. So in the circles that I was brought up in, if it was perpetuating racism, I wasn't aware of it. But I will say in the past five to 10 years, I've become much more aware of some things in larger evangelicalism. But I mean, there's another side. 
Yeah, I think all of that is great pushback, which and I think that, that that's pushback that motivates nuance, which is I, as a theologian, I love nuance. That's one of the reasons why it's important to understand terms. I gave that extra prerequisite to saying when I say white theology or white Christianity, I'm not talking about ethnic peoples. I'm talking about a social construct rooted in power within a racial caste that elevates the power of people who are from an ethnic group, but who essentially exchange that ethnic heritage for a sociological construct that grants them power that we call whiteness. And so there's absolutely been uh, what, uh, Christians who, uh, who would be perceived and identified as white who have been a part of the global Christian movement. And so when I think about Charles Spurgeon's refusal to even have communion with slaveholders, Charles Spurgeon was a European Christian. He was a white Christian, but he wasn't part of white Christianity. He repudiated white Christianity to great consequence, and he chose the side with the historic faith of, of Christ. There were abolitionists who were willing who were willing to stand against the onslaught of white Christianity, the heresy of white Christianity, and would say, no, we will not look at black people as being less than human and not deserving of dignity and honor and, and freedom and those kinds of things. So regarding that, what I would say is that's why it's important to understand the difference between uh, uh, Christ, uh, Christians and Christian traditions that are not they don't find their identity and are not rooted in whiteness, but are rather rooted in the historic faith of Christ, the creeds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and, and who are pursuing faithfulness from theological traditions that are fueled by pursuits of power. Who So theological traditions that are more married to politics than they are to the kingdom of God. And so they're more identified by their republicanism uh, than they are by their kingdom ethics, for example. You know, and so th that would be the distinction that I'm making. And, and what I would want to make abundantly clear is that when I say white Christians, I'm not talking about Christians who would be perceived and identified as white. I'm mm -hmm. talking about Christians who embrace the power structure, the social construct of whiteness, and they move accordingly in regards to how they, they use faith. So again, mm -hmm. faith is weaponized. Faith is used to oppress. Faith is used for self-glory and self-advancement. Faith is used to silence and marginalize other people. You know, so rather than the way that faith has historically been used, as you mentioned, group, whether it be the Methodist, whether it be, um, you know, other white, you know, uh, Baptist, who, uh, Northern Baptist, who split from white supremacist Baptist. <laughs> you know, yeah, so I think that it's important to make that distinction of what, I'm, what is being said versus what's not being said. Hmm. And then when it comes to something like, go ahead. Well, and, and wouldn't you say, and, and I don't know, maybe, maybe you wouldn't say, but it's been my understanding that evangelicalism has been a reform movement within Christianity. And historically, when it comes to this issue, you know, we look to the William Wil Wilberforce and what started in Europe and then came to the United States, I would say, not necessarily in the South, in the Southern Baptist Convention, nobody's going to argue whether that was yeah. uh, racist and, and used against, uh, you know, African Americans. But as a movement, evangelicalism, historically, and I think this is what's been hard for people like me that grew up evangelical. And to me, evangelical was about reform. 
it was about abolition at Wheaton College. That's where I graduated from. Our founder was Jonathan Blanchard, who was an abolitionist. And so when as evangelicals, what I think of historically have thought of was that we were reformers within a system that had become very corrupt. And that's what I think is so hard right now is looking at how we have become very, I would say, corrupted by the culture around us, by the power dynamics, by this evangelical industrial complex that we've just gotten wrapped up in it. And it, it, it impacts even how we're treating now people of color. And, and maybe, maybe I'm wrong, and I, I'm looking with rose-colored glasses at, at the history of evangelicalism. Maybe there's a lot of worse things there. But, you know, I grew up in the North. I grew up in, in again, a very separatist kind of movement. And so this is shocking to me. I'll just say it. It's shocking to me. On the grand scale of things, speaking from a historical perspective, I think one of the things that um, uh, white people often overlook. So when we think about mm-hmm. something like racism, we typically, and th- th- there's a reason for this, why society has chosen to classify racism in this way. Mm-hmm. But when we think about racism, we're thinking about white hoods, uh, the N-word, um, lynching. We're thinking about all the most wicked and most uh, devastating expressions of racism. But instead of looking at that, that as being the most um, uh, terrible expressions, we encapsulate all of racism and put it into that thing. So racism is not racism unless it's one of these things. Mm-hmm. And so we there is no room for nuance or subtlety. It's either you're either all in or you're not. <laughs> you're either not mm-hmm. racist or you're all 100% both feet in racist with the white mask. And the subtle stuff is is really toxic. Yeah. And so what I would say is that I think it's important to understand that even when it comes to white abolitionism, that there is a difference between there were white abolitionists, many, if not most, who believed that blacks were human and and deserved to be free, but they were actually still racist or still white supremacists. So it was so whether that looked like, hey, you can be free. We don't think that you should be slaves, but you also shouldn't be marrying our women. We think you should be free, but we also don't think that you have the mental capacity to actually learn to read or actually own your own businesses. It was just simply the abolitionist ideology was that slaves should that no one should be enslaved. That did not automatically equal uh, equality, which is why we ended up with Jim Crow is because mm. even with the liberation of black bodies from bondage, there was still an ongoing idea that black people were inferior to white people. For this conversation, let's just say racism is the the posture of ethnic superiority against another. Mm. One of the things that I would ask that I think is very important for many white Christians to understand is that there is a kind of there's an expression of active racism and an expression of passive racism. And what I mean by that is, well, it can be summed up in the, the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Who was considered loving? Who honored the Imago Dei? and the wounded and the afflicted, and who did not. It wasn't just the people that beat him. It was the people who didn't esteem the dignity in the person on the ground who has been beaten enough to stop. And so there's an act of racism, an antagonistic kind of racism that looks like I am going to actively seek to destroy this image bearer. But there's the other kind of racism that doesn't consider the dignity and worth of another to the extent that they are worth their time, energy, and advocacy. 
And, and that's where we get into the dynamics of enabling. Even when we think about abuse, there are those who are like abusers and there are those who don't value the victim survivors enough to actually stand and advocate. And we, I, I know you would agree with me when we both would say that, no, love for survivors looks like not an indifference. It looks like an active advocacy. And so what I would say when it comes to the white evangelical posture towards uh, black people, towards uh, black survivors of trauma, of racial trauma, of spiritual abuse and all these other things, the dynamic of alienation or the erasure of their experience and lived realities uh, speaks to the value and dignity that they are ascribed when, in, in, in regards to their crying out. So when black people are crying out, black lives matter, it matters how you hear that. Is it a statement? Black lives matter. Is it a question? Black lives matter? Or is it a cry? Black lives matter. It matters how that's understood. And what's happened largely by the white evangelical church is that they've listened to that statement from a passive and different posture where they're just hearing it as if not as a cry, not even as a question of, do you think that black lives matter? But they're just hearing it as a declaration to which they respond, no, blue lives matter, or no, all lives matter, completely ignoring the fact that if there was a genuine belief that black people are equal in worth, value, and dignity to white people, my belief would be that white people would then care about their lived experience as much as they care about other white peoples, um, especially their family for talking about the church. And what, what, what my experience has been and what many other ethnic minorities experiences has been has been, you say you love us and you say we're family, but you would treat a white stranger or care more about the plights of a white stranger than you do me who actually has the blood, who shares the blood of Christ with you. And uh, with you, I'm talking in the general sense, not you specifically, mm -hmm. of course. And so I, so, so when again, thinking about John Piper for a quick second, that, that one stings a little bit because Piper was super influential in my life. And when my wife left Catholicism and became a Protestant and all that she had to suffer in that process, he was hugely influential with helping her obtain a grand vision of who God is. And so there will always be a thankfulness for what we've learned from him. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, yes, he wrote the book Bloodlines, but he is still friends and he still platforms and enables a pro-Confederate white supremacist who believes that slavery was not a big deal. Even more than that, believes that slaves love their masters as if as as paternal figures. Doug Wilson. Yeah. So what I would say with with Piper is that you demonstrated that you are aware that there's a problem in your book Bloodlines. You've even demonstrated that God cares about the problem in your in your preaching and your theology of a big God who cares about um, with kingdom ethics. But in the way in in your relationships and in your ministry, based on all that we know about what's happened at uh, BBC, and I I know more than most because I know conversations that are behind the scenes that have been happening in various situations related to these things. You have demonstrated just, oh, I know I'm going to get pushback on this, but you have demonstrated yourself to be passively racist. Your indifference to Douglas Wilson and his rhetoric, your refusal to listen 
to faculty who have taught at your seminary who are crying out saying that there is racism happening here. There's racial marginalization that's happening here. There's racial white supremacist ideologies permeating here. Based upon that, your infatuation with the white supremacist who owns slaves. Wait, who are you talking about right here? Jonathan Edwards, yeah. Uh, so he he owned trafficked girls who was mm. who were enslaved, who served with his his wife Sarah Edwards, and so your infatuation with him to the point where you see him as being the paradigm for godliness to the point where you overlook that reality, your relationship with Douglas Wilson, despite the fact that he's a self-avowed pro-Confederate and on and and based upon his his uh, book, I'm having the mind blank on the name of it, but um, I know the one you're talking about. When, when he talks about how great it was to be a slave. Yeah. Based upon that, what happened with Jonathan Bowers and how he sought to speak about this and the, the, the letter that he said that Piper sent to the faculty dismissing um, Jonathan Bowers and claiming, look at all I built, look at all these things. Who are you going to believe him or me? All of those things to me speak to the fact that though Piper may see the problem, though he may have a theology of God that has God in a posture that would care about the problem in the actual working out of his public life, there has not been a demonstration that's consistent in regards to these things. I think it is not surprising that the same church that would treat people of color the way that they have and embrace Doug Wilson then also tells you that empathy is a sin. And that is such a perversion. If, if right now, if there's one thing that I would say we need, and again, I'm no authority on this. You're the authority on this. You've lived it out. But I feel like if there's one thing I would say to the church right now that we need is empathy. When someone says something different from you, when a person of color expresses something like Black Lives Matter, instead of jumping on them because you've associated Black Lives Matter with riots or an ideology or whatever, why don't you listen to them? And when it comes to trauma, why don't you try to hear the trauma that's behind that? You know, that's what I don't understand is in the church why we're not acting like Christians. And Christians, we lead with love. We lead with empathy. We lead with, you know, being able. It doesn't mean that we embrace everything that somebody embraces. You might have said something today. I can hear it right now. Some discernment blogger is going to jump all over it right now and say, Julie Royce is a, you know, she's a Marxist and she's woke and all this because you expressed something on this podcast and I didn't like push back on it. Right? Yeah. And it's amazing how we're filling in the blanks for other people instead of just listening and putting down our weapons for once. And, and that's what I would love to see in the church. I, that's one thing I appreciate about you, Kyle. Like, I feel, you know, a certain amount of safety to be able to engage in these conversations. I don't feel like you're like trying to gotcha me on something. I feel like we can have an honest discussion and there's some love and some, some understanding. So, you know, I appreciate you, brother. I, I, we could talk for a really, really long time on this and we should, but this is a great first discussion I really appreciate you. I appreciate the fact that you're speaking prophetically, but I also sense you're speaking in love. I mean, you could have shaked the dust off your feet and been like, I'm done with all of you. And instead, you're willing to engage. And I appreciate that. And I see that as an act of love. And so we're going to have to wrap this just because we're, we're, we're getting so long. But, uh, you know, I want to give you that opportunity to say anything that, that you haven't said that you really feel needs to be before we, we end this. 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there's two things that I'd like to just, one to just really quickly touch on and then kind of a closing thought. Uh, I have spoken a lot about uh, my, my experience at, a, at Emmanuel Baptist Church. And my experience, I think, was horrific, <laughs> as I explained it. But I want to give space and I need to honor the single sisters who have been at Emmanuel Baptist Church and have experienced trauma and abuse there. Mm-hmm. Most of the people that I've cared for have been from that have come out of that church have been single women. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that church has found single women to be easy prey because they don't have people like men in their lives or a husband or someone to come alongside. And so in my opinion, there's been a targeting of single women in that space. And so if you're a single woman and uh, you have been a member there or somewhere else and and feel a unique sense of what I'm describing here, I want you to just know that I see you, I hear you. I am sorry for what you've gone through and what your experience was. It so deeply matters and it matters to me. Um, Then as a final thought, what I would say is that all of these things, I know for a lot of your listeners, this may be the first time that they're hearing things related to racial issues. And I know there's a couple points where I've kind of dived in deep uh, without a lot of like prep or building up to. And so I just want to say that this is the beginning of that journey. My encouragement to you would just to be to continue. I promise you I don't bite. Uh, I know other minorities don't bite. I ain't going to lie. We got some trauma. I got some trust issues, you know, but I love you. I am going to always assume sincerity uh, and try to relate to people as if they're being genuine and seeking to be sincere. And so if you're listening to this, if you have any questions, if you want to engage, you want to dialogue with me, you can hit me up on Twitter. I have no problem, you know, having conversations. I just hope that uh, this, as you said, would be the beginning of conversations leading to further, deeper conversations and relationships that can lead and cultivate empathy rather than this being the beginning and the end where it's like, okay, you know, we talked about that and then just a complete moving on as if the conversation never happened. Hmm. Well, again, Kyle, thank you so much. Blessings to you, brother. And I pray that that there will be continued healing in your own life. And I, I pray that uh, your platform as well and, and ability to speak uh, into spaces, those of us who really need to hear it, that God would give you favor in that. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Julie. I really appreciate it. And thanks so much for listening to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's. If you'd like to connect with me online, just go to julieroy's, spelled R-O-Y-S dot com. Also, just a quick reminder to subscribe to The Roy's Report on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. That way you'll never miss an episode. And while you're at it, we'd really appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word about the podcast by leaving a review. And then please share the podcast on social media so more people can hear about this great content. Again, thank you so much for joining me today. Hope you have a great day and God bless.